and welcome to She Thinks, a podcast where you're allowed to think for yourself. I'm your host, Beverly Hallberg. And on today's episode, Dr. Naomi Wolf joins us to discuss whether or not the current COVID lockdowns are forever changing the face of the United States. We'll revisit her New York Times bestselling book, The End of America, because the warnings she laid out years ago are becoming today's reality. Before we bring her on, a little bit more about her. Dr. Naomi Wolf is an author, feminist leader, and former Democrat advisor. Her most recent books include the New York Times bestsellers, The End of America and Give Me Liberty. A former Rhodes Scholar, she completed a doctorate in English language and literature from the University of Oxford in 2015, was a research fellow at Bernard College and the University of Oxford, and taught rhetoric at the George Washington University and Victorian Studies at Stony Brook University. Her latest book is Outrages, Sex, Censorship, and the Criminalization of Love. And I would like to let everybody know that the book we're discussing today, The End of America, has a new introduction, which you can download for free, as well as two chapters that you can download for free. All you have to do is go to chelseagreen.com to access those. Again, it's chelseagreen.com. But Dr. Wolf, a pleasure to have you on She Thinks today. Thank you so much. And please call me Naomi. (laughs) Naomi, I will do so. Well, we really are pleased to have you on today. I've um, been following you on Twitter. I've been seeing what you have been saying about COVID and the lockdowns and how this is leading to what you say is a totalitarian state. But I think before we get into current day, I'd really like you to discuss your book, The End of America. This is a book that we're looking to right now, even though this isn't your most recent release. This is a book from Mm -hmm. several years ago, but you relate it to what we're seeing today. So can you explain to us, first of all, how long ago did you write The End of America? Why did you write it? And how does that relate to today? Absolutely. I will I will answer all those questions. But before <laughs> I do, I just want to say how grateful I am to be talking to you because I have followed the IWF for many, many years. And it is one of the you know examples I give when people say, do you have to be on the left to be a feminist? And, you know, as you probably know, I think you can be anywhere on the political spectrum and be a feminist. So uh, I appreciate the work that you all do. So um, I wrote the book, The End of America, in 2007. It was published in 2008. And in it, I, and I wrote it because I was seeing uh, concerning signs at that time under the Bush administration, but these are really nonpartisan issues. Um, I was seeing concerning signs of, that that indicated that we were heading away from a robust democracy and toward a declining democracy, toward tyranny. And it was really early days. Uh, They were just straws in the wind. But what I did was I looked back at um, totalitarian or fascist regimes on the right and the left uh, in history, and I saw that there's kind of a blueprint uh, that that would-be tyrants always do the same 10 things. They take the same... 10 steps, whether they're on the left or the right, and that these 10 steps, when they are taken, inevitably uh, lead to the end of democracy, the closing of democracy. Um, So I kept up those warnings under the Obama administration because it didn't matter to me that, you know, I'm a dem, he's a dem, didn't matter. He carried forward uh, some of those tyrannical uh, steps that had been set in place. And I kept up the warning under Trump. And now, um, you know, people often have asked me over the last 12 years, will you tell us when we're at step 10? And I've always said, you know, there's still hope. We're not there yet. But actually, we, we are now at step 10. I'm so sorry to say we're here. Uh, and that 
what I really want people to understand is under the guise of a real medical emergency and often um, would-be tyrants use crises, real crises, and they hype them and they manipulate them and exploit them to, uh, to seize power. Um, under the uh, narrative of a, of a real pandemic, um, we, are, we are absolutely seeing the takeover of our democratic system and the establishment of emergency law, which is the democracies are closed. And so let's get into that 10th step a little bit more. You, you talk about the pandemic as really being the the reason why leaders were able to take so much of this power. Did you expect that it would be a pandemic that would get us here? And what were the specific things that elected officials did that allowed the citizenry to allow them to take this power? I, I, I would say that in many ways we have let elected officials take emergency powers and take our freedoms away, correct? Yeah, we have. Um, I mean, I, I, I gave the American people a pass for about six months because we were afraid. And it was a new, we were, you know, constantly being told this is a new virus. We don't know how it works. There are going to be, you know, tens of thousands, millions of bodies stacked up. And, you know, fear is always used at these moments to terrify people into submitting to giving up their uh, democracy. I mean, Goebbels made this point, you know, if you scare people enough, they'll let you do anything. Um, so I don't blame the American people initially. Uh, but a year in, I, I do blame us. <laughs> you know, I do. And I really appreciate uh, those states where governors are standing up and saying, no, I am not going to, you know, uh, hold on to emergency powers. We're going to open up. We're going to respect the rule of law and the Constitution. And I'm very appalled. You know, I, I am a liberal and I don't mean to like liberal bash, but I have to be honest, I've always been honest and put, you know, the Constitution above partisanship. I'm horrified that my own team is is using this pandemic to um, shut down freedom of speech, to enforce, uh, uh, you know, invest powers in the CDC that no public health agency is supposed to have, according to our checks and balances, the, you know, the Democratic governors like... um, uh, Mario Cuomo in New York, where I live, and uh, Gavin Newsom in California are in, engaging in tyrannical suppression of their own people, forcibly shutting businesses, uh, which is basically theft, um, forcibly keeping children out of school, which is a human rights violation, imposing mask mandates, which is also a human rights violation, um, enforcing isolation, which violates the Geneva Conventions, um, you know, trying to uh, hold our kids hostage so that they can force vaccines on kids, which should be a parent's choice, of course, uh, and violates, you know, uh, informed consent laws uh, and so on and so on. I'm sorry, not Mario Cuomo, Andrew Cuomo, his son is our um, governor in New York State. So uh, all of these things are being done. Like uh, Andrew Cuomo, I get an email every 30 days that tells me that my governor in New York State is extending emergency law for another 30 days. And there's no oversight. There's no way to, you know, stop him. Um, you know, 14 senators have mobilized to try to claw back his emergency powers. But as history shows, once people have emergency powers, it is very difficult to to get them back. And there is no emergency in Columbia County where I live. I crunched the numbers and there are fewer people dying of COVID in my county than um, deaths of despair due to lockdowns, which include you know, opioid overdoses, suicide, 
um, you know, drug addiction, overdoses, and so on. So uh, it's it's catastrophic, you know. And I went to the town hall in Salem, Massachusetts. Uh, Massachusetts is also closed yesterday, and I was told there are not going to be town meetings reopening for the foreseeable future because Governor Baker, you know, who's a Republican, but he's still doing it, has emergency powers, um, and they wouldn't show me any data to support the. Uh, the, the justification for emergency powers. So basically, in the city of Salem, the, the citizens' rights are suspended. And Massachusetts was like a birthplace of, of American freedom and, and democracy. So this is happening across the country, and it's absolutely terrifying. One, th- one of the things that has surprised me, because it's not just our, our U.S. Constitution, which, of course, is paramount, it's also state constitutions that have been violated when these emergency powers have been extended past what is usually expected if there's some type of, of emergency. Usually that's weather-related, where a governor needs to make decisions because the legislature can't get together. These powers were just willingly giving these governors in certain certain states. Why do—so here, here's what I want to get into— is the psyche of those who want to take the power. Why do they think they know better than a citizen, somebody who they represent? Why don't they why do they not trust that individual with the freedom to make decisions about their health and about schooling and children, etc.? Oh, Beverly, you're asking such an important question and the answer is <laughs> really heartbreaking. I mean, that's uh. the essential question, right? And that, that should be how our democracy works, of course, that, you know, our elected officials represent us and listen to us and respond to us. Unfortunately, I can never forget what I learned as a political consultant um, at the highest levels. And uh, that was to uh, the Clinton election campaign and to um, Gore 2000. And those were like pretty reasonable politicians. But um, I mean, you may or may not agree, but they, even so, uh, the people who, you know, influenced the shape of policy even then were special interests. And that has only gotten worse. So in a crisis especially, um, what happens is big, uh, big special interests, and in this case, it's pharmaceuticals, it's big tech, which is up 27% every quarter since the pandemic began. It's... Um, Corporations like Amazon, which is also up astronomically, uh, and um, you know other other entities that profit from this, they're the ones who are uh, clustering around governors and policymakers and saying, "Okay, the response has to look like this. We need distance learning. Ugh, we um, we need distance learning. Sorry, we swerved uh, because you know the, the distance learning tech platforms have just made three hundred million dollars this year." They, you know, they had these, these um, distance learning curricula ready to roll out. It's a fantastic opportunity, as Rahm Emanuel said, never waste a good crisis uh, to keep our kids alone and isolated, even though children are not at risk, uh, and to, you know, mint these millions year after year. The same thing, you know, I watched play out in detail in New York State. I'm a tiny landlord. Um, as a single mom, I fed my kids by having saved up through scraping, you know, a tiny piece of property that let me have a steady income when being a writer, you know, didn't let me have an income to feed my kids. And so during the pandemic, uh, Andrew Cuomo served his buddies in the real estate industry and Bill de Blasio served his buddies in the real estate industry by um, preventing evictions for six months. 
So this sounds compassionate. There's no epidemiological reason for it. But what it really does is it shakes out small businesses. This is a war on the middle class. It's a war on everyone who isn't a gigantic corporation. It kills small businesses. It kills restaurants. It kills small landlords. And then there's one moment when all the property prices in New York, in the New York area, I watched this happen, dropped like 25% because that was two weeks after the evictions limitation ran out. So all those tiny landlords like me or immigrant families or people who barely could hold on had not made any income for six months. They couldn't. They were desperate. They sold at a fire sale and gigantic institutional investors scooped that up. You know, same thing with pharmaceuticals. Uh, Believe it or not, people at the CDC um, get revenue from, you know, vaccines if they hold patents. And there's something called the CDC Foundation, uh, in, which gets tens of millions of dollars a year from Bill Gates and from pharmaceuticals. Um, Bill Gates and pharmaceuticals also give millions of dollars to both political parties. Uh, you and I don't necessarily give millions of dollars to both political parties. So these uh, influencers at a high level are able to craft the response to this pandemic. And in an emergency, with emergency powers, uh, you, you have no pressure uh, from citizens or they get upset, but there's nothing they can do about it to stop this feeding trough for special interests, to keep your kids at home, to drive everyone onto technology, which makes millions for tech companies, um, to, you know, kill small businesses and so on and so on. Yeah, I know that we uh, on this podcast have focused specifically on teachers unions as well, and that being one of the root causes why we see certain areas where kids aren't going back to school because of the special interest um, incentives there. I, I want to get to the ability to be able to take this power, and that has to start by sowing seeds of fear, people being mm-hmm. fearful. Um, obviously, there are understandable concerns with this pandemic, especially for those 65 and older, those who have pre-existing conditions. It's not to minimize that. The, we have hundreds of thousands of people who have died in this country um, and the world much more. When we look at sowing fear, do you think the media has been a role player in this because people have to be fearful in order to give up their rights to their elected officials. What role has fear and the media's display of that fear has it played a part in this? So Beverly, absolutely. Um, These are the right questions to ask because when you ask and answer these questions, you see gigantic pieces of the puzzle fall into place. Uh, Without these answers, it's very confusing what's happening to us. Um, So, yes, uh, I want to let people know that um, the Gates Foundation uh, has given, again, tens of millions of dollars for, quote unquote, COVID education to the New York Times, NPR, The Guardian, the BBC, um, and a number of other news outlets, according to the Columbia Journalism Review and my own scrutiny of um, the Gates Foundation, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation 990s. So they've blanketed, you know, these news outlets with cash for COVID education. The Gates Foundation is also funding vaccines and uh, involved in K-12 education and so on. They have way too much power. As a result, I don't think the media is really free to run a story like, um, really, everything's much better now, or, you know, kids, you know, what's really true, what the, the facts that I've learned that have led me to adjust my own fear level and response as a caring mom and a conscientious person, you know, really haven't come from 
uh, news outlets that are corrupted by Gates money. Um, they've come directly from scientists or from peer-reviewed studies. And so when you open the New York Times, they're reporting with data that's, that's A, corrupt, right? News outlets, as you know, per journalistic ethics, should disclose if they've got funding that is a conflict of interest. Um, but the second thing is, they're also using really bad data, and they're using it to scare people. An example of this is the digital dashboards that I'm sure everyone has seen if they read national news, the COVID-19 tracking project, or the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health um, COVID dashboard that all the major news outlets link to. Well, I run a digital government data dashboard as CEO of a tech company, Daily Cloud, and I know that you can tell any story with a digital dashboard if the data sets aren't linked. And they aren't linked, so you can't check them. And these people who run these uh, dashboards are funded by Bloomberg, who also is making a fortune um, as, a, as a tech guy on lockdowns. Um, and also lockdowns and a lockdown economy give someone like Bloomberg the ability to uh, really short or long the economy kind of with legal insider trading. Like if you know because you're funding the dashboard, pardon me, what the data are going to say, you know, five minutes before everyone else does, you can make a, a fortune um, investing, you know, going long on Amazon if you know that, you know, lockdown's going to extend another, you know, week or whatever it is the numbers are doing. These are not, you know, state health agencies. These are not verifiable numbers. And, you, and they do really sneaky things like they report numbers cumulatively, right? So that every time you open that dashboard, it says, you know, half a million people have died. And they don't say over the course of 12 months. They say it, it reads like today. Or they'll do things like not update the data, you know, over a holiday. And then you'll get a huge spike. You know, it looks like a huge spike. And also the CDC is playing games. Like um, a few months ago, they changed the definition of how they count COVID so that they counted it with pneumonia and influenza. And those diseases kill people every year by tens of thousands. In 2017, 70,000 people died of the flu, right? Those are big numbers. But they just folded it all into one category. And then when they couldn't create a category that was robust enough of people dying of COVID, they changed it to dying with COVID. And you see these same games being played in Britain and in Canada and other places that populations are being scared um, with COVID data. And I just want to say one last factual point. Um, in Minnesota, two uh, state senators did what people really should do, which is they audited the death certificates. And what they found with a real audit, which because no one's checking these numbers, right, independently, is that 40% of the death certificates had been uh, inflated as COVID deaths. And the same thing is happening in Britain. People are starting to say, you know, my loved one was assigned as having died of COVID or with COVID, but they died with dementia or in a car crash or of cancer or various other causes of death. And, you know, you and I are, are journalists, and, and we both know that when there's this much, you know, fudging and lack of transparency, uh, that's a red flag. And as one scientist who's a whistleblower pointed out, um, it's during a public health crisis that data about the crisis should be especially transparent and verifiable. And the last thing I want to add, um, can you hear me? I just want to make sure you're there. I am here. Okay, great. The last thing I want to add, uh, you know, without getting too nerdy about this, but people really deserve to know, 
is that there is a scandal with the tests, right? And I, I, you know, maybe many of your listeners haven't heard this yet. Maybe they have, because it really hasn't been reported, you know, on CNN or NPR. It should be. It's a huge story. But the PCR tests, which are most of the tests that you get, like the one I got when I went to CVS and had a COVID test, um, those be dialed up to generate false positives at an industrial scale when the cycle threshold is raised above 25. Um, and, you know, an investigation found out that labs were running them at 35, even 45, which is guaranteed. I went and reported this out at a PCR test lab with a PCR test expert, but many other people have reported this, um, which is guaranteed to generate false positives. A PCR test can report as positive a flu or a cold that you had months ago. So as a result, and the other thing is duplicates are not being counted. So if I get tested every week, like, you know, a relative does who works at a restaurant, there's nothing to keep her positive test, right, um, from being replicated over and over as if it's multiple people. So this combination of sloppiness and error means that we really can't know how bad this pandemic has been because the WHO issued a correction uh, in January of this year saying, you know, labs have to disclose at what level they're running these cycle thresholds because these tests are generating false positives at an industrial scale. So that's the, that's the kind of facts behind these pandemics. It's bad, bad science, bad numbers. I'm not trivializing this at all. I know people who've been really sick and a couple of elderly people who have sadly passed away from this disease. But we as a nation have lived through bad diseases before, much worse than this. We've lived through the Spanish flu and cholera and typhus and smallpox and HIV. And never in the Constitution, I say this a lot, does it say this all is to be suspended in the event of a bad disease. In fact, as uh, someone pointed out recently, it's in difficult times that the, the Constitution is meant for difficult times to get us through them with Absolutely. our liberties. Absolutely. And before we get to what we can do, I want to take a moment to highlight IWS Champion Women Profile Series, which focuses on women across the country and world that are accomplishing amazing things. The media too often ignore their stories, but we don't. We celebrate them and we bring their stories to you. Our current profile is Representative Nicole Maliotakis from New York's 11th Congressional District. To check out her story, do go to IWF.org to see why she's this week's champion woman. And just to follow up on all of that, Naomi, I think there's a valid reason I'm one of those included in this, which is those of us who have questioned the numbers, questioned the data. I, I've had family members with false positives. We, we have our own personal experiences, but we've also seen the contradictions, even the CDC most recently saying that they're, here are the freedoms they're going to give back to us. And it's like, you never right. had those freedoms. Those, those are our freedoms. And you can make exactly. suggestions based on science. Um, right. But I think even the numbers themselves, people have had many questions. Of course, the big story in your home state of New York has been Andrew Cuomo and the nursing home disaster yeah. in his policies yeah. and the cover-up that of those thousands of seniors who died um, because of his COVID policies. And I think when we hear all of this and we hear the data that you're giving to us, we ask, what can we do? If we're at step 10, 
if we're already at step yeah. 10, is it too late? Or do we see glimmers of hope because we see certain politicians saying, no, we're giving the power back to the people or they never took it mm-hmm. to begin with. Are there are enough pockets of, of elected officials who aren't trying to take this power for themselves and enough people who are willing to stand up for it that it's not yet hopeless? Well, Beverly, you know, this is completely up to us. I mean, I don't want to minimize the gravity of the moment we're at. If we don't act like literally now every single day, it will be too late. And I don't think Americans have any idea. Some of them do if they came from, you know, totalitarian countries. But most Americans or if their ancestors did, most Americans, thank God, don't have any idea how that there is something much more scary than a bad disease. And that is life without freedom. And we're hurtling in that direction. So I do see hope, but it absolutely depends on us as individuals, as patriots. And the most important thing I can do, we can do. And I think it's notable that I was deplatformed from multiple platforms after I called for this. But the most important thing we can do, as was my husband, um, is to unite across partisan lines to create a movement, a freedom movement to save our liberty and that there are many action steps there. I mean, moms for liberty in Florida who are conservatives and, you know, moms around Jennifer Say, who's Democrat in San Francisco, uh, who care about getting their kids back to school without masks on their little faces are uniting and other moms are reaching out to them um, to open schools. You know, I'm in touch with a bunch of lawyers across party lines who are suing state governors uh, because these laws are, you know, completely illegal. You know, we can unite to really say to those in power that the midterms and the next presidential election is going to go to uh, people who put freedom first and give back emergency powers. But honestly, if we don't move quickly, there won't be real elections for midterms. There won't be real elections for the presidency. I mean, that's what happens in a closing society. It's window dressing. So absolutely every single day we have to be, you know, winter soldiers and not summer soldiers, you know, winter patriots and really join across party lines. You know, the things that divide us, you know, you and me, for instance, uh, you know, we may not agree on abortion or we may not agree on guns, um, but we absolutely need to put those things in second place and join as many millions of us, because I'm hearing from them, across party lines, agree on defending the Constitution and putting these people, you know, prosecuting them um, as traitors. Uh, And that is what we can do. And we appreciate at IWF your bravery in speaking up on this. I know that the people who disagree with you are very swift to cancel and to hurl insults. And I'm sure you have received your fair share of that. So we appreciate your bravery in this and also the encouragement for all of us to speak up because so much is at stake. Again, the name of the book is The End of America. It's over a decade old, but we are seeing the fruits of what was said there um, come to fruition today. It's, It's an important book. And also, I just want to mention once again that Naomi's latest book is Outrageous Sex Censorship and the Criminalism of love, but we so appreciate you coming on and sharing the the facts and the data and not filtering that through a lens that benefits just political power. So we appreciate what you have done for the sake of the Constitution and freedom, and thank you for joining us today. Well, I, I appreciate all of you, and thank you for this conversation as well. 
And thank you for joining us. Before you go, Independent Women's Forum does want you to know that we rely on the generosity of supporters like you. An investment in IWF fuels our efforts to enhance freedom, opportunity, and well-being for all Americans. Please consider making a small donation to IWF by visiting iwf.org backslash donate. That is iwf.org backslash donate. And last, if you enjoyed this episode of She Thinks, do leave us a rating or a review on iTunes. It does help. Also, we'd love it if you shared this episode and let your friends know where they can find more She Thinks episodes. From all of us here at Independent Women's Forum, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.